We are going to continue our exposition of the book of 2 Thessalonians. And before we read uh, a portion out of chapter 1, let's stand together and ask for the Lord's blessing upon us. Let's pray together. Our blessed God, we come in the name of our great prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come, O Lord, to hear His Word. We come to hear His voice. We come to hear the truth. We come, O Lord, to be sincerely fed the precious and holy Word of God. Come and feed us. Come and train us, instruct us. Come and, Lord, teach us Your holy Word that we would be a holy people that we would be a body pleasing in your sight. Change ourselves. Change our families. Lord, change this body to the blessed image of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in what we hear, and what we learn, and what we practice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> and beloved, I want to begin reading chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 12, that whole section. Hear now the precious Word of God. Now we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even ever greater. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Now this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give, you re and give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints and on that day. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always. That our God will count you worthy of your calling. And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. And you in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's precious word. You may be seated. <clears throat> now brothers and sisters, the portion of this epistle that I've read is an exhortation. It's an encouragement. Before Paul gets into the meaty portion of this epistolatory response to a problem at Thessalonica, he wants to encourage the people of God. And it's important to do that. And it's important for ministers to know when to do it. So that God's people might take heart and not grow weary in doing good. 
They were a suffering church. They were a church undergoing some pretty serious persecution. As in other epistles where the saints are suffering, those epistles like this one has hearty and meaty exhortations in them. Suffering Christians need encouragement. Saints that are hurting need encouragement. The Apostle Paul understands rather well how hardships can detour a sincere heart from worshiping God. Difficulty, difficult situations, difficult relationships, harsh economic times, plain out suffering and hurt, soul, the, the, the kind of hurt that, that affects our soul. Paul knows how that can have a, a very ill effect upon the church of Jesus Christ, the visible church of Jesus Christ, the church on earth, the church where the gospel is needed, where the gospel is preached, where the Word of God is opened up, where the Spirit is poured out, where there is the ministry of, of, of God's gifts to the church so that they might be built up, so they might be called out of the world, built up and saved, made a beautiful temple for our God, a beautiful bride. To be washed and cleansed. Now Satan cannot rob a true Christian of their salvation. But he can certainly make it difficult and joyless for you to serve Christ. He can do that. Paul wants to bring an encouraging word to the Thessalonians. He wants to encourage them. He wants to help them continue on being pleasing to God and glorifying Him. He doesn't want them to draw back under their suffering. He doesn't want them to give up worship, the study of God's Word. He doesn't want them, He doesn't want their prayer to diminish. He wants it to increase. And what we're going to see in this portion of God's Word that I read is we're going to find three distinct traits of a church that does two things. Number one, a church that glorifies God and a church that builds up the body of Christ. There are going to be three distinct traits in these 12 verses that I want to pull out, that I want to open up to you. And I want you to see that if we are going to follow in the vein of what it means to be faithful, a faithful body, a faithful assembly, we need to examine ourselves by these three traits. Now, you don't have to be a Christian very long to understand that the, the ultimate purpose of your salvation is to bring glory to God. Amen? Amen? We know that. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian long. I mean, any, any professing believer sitting in any church worth sitting in 
is going to teach that new convert, that new disciple of Christ, that their primary objective and goal in this life is to glorify God above everything else. That doesn't mean there are not other goals in your life, but the primary one, the first one, is to glorify God. And there's another primary goal that we're going to find, and that we find throughout the Word of God, we're going to find it in this epistle. And that is not only are we to glorify God, but we are to love the brethren. That a primary goal of salvation is that we serve and worship and love and adore and glorify God, but we also now love the people of God. That we have been given a renewed interest and desire and delight that goes far beyond ourselves. That begins to rest and focus upon those around us, particularly, especially those who profess faith in our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that transcends color, race. That transcends economic uh, statuses, doesn't it? That transcends political party. It transcends everything else. For we know that around the throne of God in heaven is every tribe, tongue, and people, nation. They'll be poor. They'll be rich. They'll be middle class. They'll be every kind of person on earth around this throne, worshiping and adoring. And it's our... It's, 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 it's this part of the fruit of the Spirit of God that our hearts love those people. Desire their good. And we need to see that in this portion of God's Word. Let me go ahead and give you those three traits. Though I won't open all three of them up this morning... I want to give them to you. I want you to be thinking about them. I want you to be praying about them. I want you to be looking for them in yourselves and in this body. Those three traits that we're going to look at, the first one is the increase of Christian grace. The increase of Christian grace. We see right there in verse 3, notice how Paul gives thanks to God. What is Paul doing? It's a prayer. He's praising God. He's praying to God, but he's glorifying God. And what does he glorify God for? Notice there in verse 3, their faith enlarged, their enlarged faith and their ever-increasing love. We see right there in verse 3 that there is this trait of Christian graces increasing in the assembly of God's people. Now let me say this, and I really want you to have this in your head and heart as we go along. Paul is certainly speaking to the body, speaking to the church. What he says, he says to everyone. But what makes up a body? Parts. There are hands and fingers and Legs and toes and feet and arms and torso, neck. and Jesus is the head. We are the parts. 
As individuals, yes, we need to look at these things. But we have to go beyond thinking these things may be true of me. We may have 80% truths. We may have 70, 60. But how does that relate to the body? Right? We're not... Imagine the hand trying to go off on its own. It's impossible. What if my hand said, I do not want to be a part of Jess Stanfield anymore? Well, he's in trouble, and I guess I'm in trouble too. We have to look at these traits in the light, not only of individuals, of ourselves, but how we are connected to each other. You look around you, you know who's sitting around you. And you're going to have to ask yourself, how are these things true of me affecting the person next to me? The increase of Christian graces. There's a second trait that we need to examine and look at. And that is the edification of the whole body of Christ. Now look at verse 4. Notice how their faithfulness, that their obedience and faithfulness in great difficulty and persecution, notice how it's affecting the larger body of Christ. Verse 4, he says, We ourselves, these apostles, speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. That is, brothers and sisters, when we, whether it is positive or whether it's negative, we impact the body of Christ. There's a direct connection. How can the hand not affect my arm? How can my arm not affect my shoulder? How can my shoulder not affect the rest of my body? How can my little finger not affect me? I mean, hit my little finger and I'm going to hurt. Step on a thorn. You hurt. It affects everything. Get a little speck, the tiniest speck of lint or sand in your eye and see if that doesn't affect you. So we see that in a very positive way, when the body of Christ, when the assembly, the visible church, those who make profession of faith, when they are actively increasing in grace, when they are actively doing what they've been saved to do and called to do in Christ, when they are walking in the light of the Word of God, when they are doing these things, I want you to recognize here how that glorifies God and how it builds up the body of Christ. Paul was able, along with Silas, along with Timothy, to go to other churches, to other places where they were being persecuted and say, Brothers, take heart. Don't give up your worship. Don't give up on Christ. Look at your brothers in Thessalonica. Look at this family. Look at that family. Look at these churches. They are standing fast and true and holding on to the ministry. Don't give up. Be like them. Follow their example. Get your eyes off of your circumstances and put them on something greater than yourselves. If you need it. Remember, where did the Thessalonians get it? 
Paul tells us in the first epistle, he says, you followed our example. They learn how to endure persecutions faithfully by watching Paul. By watching Silas. By listening to Timothy. These men had suffered persecutions. These men had suffered hardship. These men were whipped for believing in Christ. And they witnessed the joy of God in their hearts. These men being run out of one synagogue into the next. We don't want to hear that gospel. We don't want to hear that message. We don't want to hear a a, a message that attacks the philosophy of egalitarianism, fascism, feminism, pluralism. I'm going to talk about that later on. We don't want to hear that message. We want to hear something that supports these humanistic ideas and philosophies that gives us the justification to be self-centered and humanistic. We don't want to hear that gospel that requires every person to bow a knee to the sovereignty of God in Christ Jesus. Through Believe and repent of your sins. We want want that to Jesus. The third trait that we're going to look at before we leave this chapter is that distinction that must be in every true church between them and the world. There must be, beloved, a distinction between the church and the world. Got to be. Where do we find it in this text? Well, we find it in their persecution. We find it in their persecution. They had given up the gods of the day. First Thessalonians chapter 1, right? They had turned from the gods of their culture to embrace the living and true God. And because they had turned from the false gods of their day and embraced Jesus Christ as the one and only true God, they were hated, they were despised, they were persecuted against. Not only did they have persecution from their own Greek culture, but they received persecution from those legalistic Jews who did not want the gospel of Christ to go forth. Paul makes it clear that they don't want me preaching to you the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. They want to keep me from doing it. Notice what he says in verse 5. This is a plain indication of the righteous judgment of God so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. That word suffering, beloved, is a strong word. It means to hurt. They were hurting. Hurting for what? For the kingdom of God. Now I'm not only going to say this and then we're going to get back 
to the first point. We don't worship Zeus. And we don't worship any of those mythological gods, do we? But we do worship other gods. The church must be distinct from the world. We must have a distinct understanding of God, the true and living God. And when you embrace the true and living God, you're going to make those who worship money angry. You're going to make those who worship politics angry. You're going to make those who worship feminism angry. You're going to make those who are saying, are we just all equal? Can we all get along? Pluralism or um, this idea that all religions are this exactly the same, all going to the same place. You're going to make them angry. You're going to make them mad. See, there's no way to be distinctly Christian and make everybody happy. And that includes husbands and wives, right? Yeah. Christianity can cause some serious marital problems when one spouse wants to serve Christ and the other could care less. Challenges and difficulties they have to be overcome. You young people, almost, you need to make sure you are listening to your parents' wisdom and you need to make sure that you are listening to the ministry of this church to help guide you in a world that is filled with all kinds of false gods. This is a gift to you. It's a grace for your benefit. And you're only going to excel to the, to the degree you use it. All right. Let's look at this first trait. Spend time here this morning opening up this idea of increasing of Christian graces. The two graces that Paul highlights about this body of believers is faith and love. Now let's look at faith. Faith, beloved, is not your profession of faith. Faith is not your profession of faith. A profession of faith is a word about your faith. It's a word concerning your faith. It is not your faith. And I want you to understand that making a profession of faith is not the same thing as having saving faith. It's not the same thing. When you have saving faith, you do wish to acknowledge it and profess it. They certainly are connected, but one is not necessarily the other. What is saving faith? I'm going to mention some things about faith and what saving faith is that I hope will help us this morning understand the text that we are dealing with. What is this saving faith? Well, beloved, 
as it has been highlighted in the two epistles of Thessalonians, it's the starting place of service and worship of God. It's the beginning. It's not the end. It's that starting point of a believer's new life in Christ, if you will, for himself. First of all, the Holy Spirit comes and he brings with him the power of a new life. And he gives us a new heart. Out of that new heart, the fruit of that regeneration, the fruit, if you will, that, that root, that religious and holy life root that's been planted in us by the Holy Spirit begins to bear fruit. And that first essential fruit is that faith. In Christ Jesus. That believing, that trusting, that recognizing, that recognition that Jesus is the Son of God, both man and God. It's the believing that whatever the Word of God teaches about Jesus Christ, that is the object of that faith. It's not only, beloved, that starting point of that person's new life. New life. Faith is the demarcation, if you will, that separates the old ways from the new ways. Right? Well, it should. If it hasn't, it's not faith. See? If you're still the same old person, you've never had faith. If you've got the same old desires you used to have, if the power of sin is still as strong in your life as it ever was, you've never had faith. It's the place where separation begins. Separating of an old life to a new life. Separating of of, of, of idol worship. To the worship of the true God. The Bible teaches us in Hebrews that without faith it's impossible to please God. Romans. See without faith you can't even please God. It's a separation of a life that is not pleasing to God. To a life now that in Christ his blood sanctifies me. His blood saves me. His blood purchases me. His blood now makes me able to be pleasing in God's sight. A new beginning, new separation, new convictions. The moment the Holy Spirit gives life, beloved, listen to me. Saving faith is this. It is a deep, 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 deep interest in Jesus Christ. That's what separates saving faith from all other kinds of faith. I now have a deep interest in Christ and the things of God. What do I mean by deep? You know, I don't use that word often. I just don't throw that word around often. I mean the kind of depth that goes far beyond everything else. You can be interested in computers and cars and Hobbies. 
this interest in Jesus Christ must excel all of that. Or it's not faith. Faith itself as a as a fruit of that holy seed that has been planted in us in new life is that deep interest in Christ. I don't understand everything. I don't have to understand everything. But what I do understand is I want more of Him. There's something in me that yearns for Jesus. It's a deep interest, beloved. It's that... Faith is that beginning place where we are His. We are His and He is ours. The Bible tells us that where we are, He is. He also tells us that where He is, we are. He is both here and there and we are here and there. The Bible tells us that we are seated on the throne with Him in heaven. I mean, we're not physically there. But we are covenantally there. Being represented by the scars on His hands and feet. Represented by the scars upon His brow. Where they placed mockingly the crown of thorns. We are there represented by the shed blood of Christ covenantally. And if we are there, He is here. That begins with faith. Faith. Without faith, there is no presence of God. What do you think Paul says when he talks about these persecutors, when he talks about these afflictors that are bringing this suffering to these now professing believers in Jesus Christ? What does he tell them? He says, listen, in verse 8, dealing out retribution. This is God's response to those who would touch his children, to those who would touch the very bride of Jesus Christ. He says, God is dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very distinct, very clear. No misunderstanding, right? Not maybe so, half so, I don't know, not sure. No, God brings retribution. Recompense. What these men and women have have, have dealt out. What they have done. All the suffering and the hurt that they have caused the believers of Jesus Christ. God says that to that degree, I shall pour out that same affliction upon them. They do not believe and they do not know me. I think he's talking about two classes of sinners. I think he's talking about when he says those who do not know God. I think he's talking about the Jews. What was their boast? Their boast was this. We know God. We have the word of God. We have the synagogues. We have the worship places. We have the history of the prophets, though they killed them all. They hated and killed Christ 
Oh, we have the ministry of God. But they don't know God. Then there are those who just reject the gospel because it conflicts with their desire and love for sin and pleasure. I don't want that gospel. Man, you're asking me to give up sin. I love sin. I want to sin. I like sinning. And I like being with people who sin. And I don't want that gospel. There's a lot of unbelievers who absolutely know what the gospel really is and don't want to give up their sin. In fact, there's some unbelievers who reject the gospel because they love their sin who, are, who are, seem to be more enlightened, more enlightened than many Christians who don't think they ought to give up anything. They don't understand the gospel. And probably, mm, they don't have saving faith. Either. This deep interest, beloved, that Paul, that, that faith is, as Paul talks about, he says, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting. That word fitting there means proper. As they have, have they, notice this word is it because your faith is greatly enlarged. What do we see there about this faith? It's growing. It's increasing. It's getting bigger and stronger. It has, the bigger it gets, the stronger it becomes in their lives and in the life of that church body. What do we see? We see a greater uh, sensitivity to all the things of God as faith increases. God's power is more visible. And what do I mean by that? Well, obviously, this is a portion of God's Word that teaches us that faith can grow and should grow. And it ought to be growing. It ought to be growing. And when it is growing, guess what? It glorifies God. What's the opposite of that? What, is your, what if your faith isn't growing? Are you glorifying God? Saving faith must always be connected to the Word, the Word of God, not an experience. And this is going to separate us from some believers who give a lot of weight to experiences. You know, God talked to me. God showed me. I saw this. I felt this. The problem with those things is they are can easily mislead us, can't they? Not the Word. The Word must always be connected with faith, saving faith. That's why I dealt with the three, the three blessings of the church in verses 1 and 2 because the Word of God had come to them. How did the Word come to them? In a dream? No. Did it come in this miraculous vision? Did this, you know, uh, three suns in the sky? What were the suns? No, one just came by men that had been whipped with scourges, had been thrown in jail, probably bearing the bruise and scars of believing in Jesus Christ. They came what? Preaching a message. And he says, and you, Paul says, you received our word as for what it really, really is. And that is the word of God, not the words of men. The word must always be connected to our faith, beloved. 
If you want to examine whether or not you have saving faith, you're going to have to go to the Word. And I want to just point out one thing to you as we talk about a deep interest in Christ, as we talk about Christ being the primary object of faith, the sole object of faith, if you will. But because Christ is the Word, you cannot separate Christ from the Scriptures. Luke 24, 38 through 45, but especially verse 32. When Jesus came and walked with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, He opened up the Bible. He opened up the Old Testament. And He showed them in the Old Testament those passages of Scriptures pertaining to Himself. He opened up the Word of God. What means this? That Christ began to teach them the Word. And He says, listen, this passage of Scripture speaks of me. And their testimony was this. He said, did not our hearts burn within us? Did not our hearts burn when saving faith is hearing Jesus expounded and explained and opened up In the Word of God, guess what hearts do? They burn to know more. They burn with delight. They burn with joy. There's a lot of people that sit in church and make professions of faith and could care less about the teaching of the Word of God, care less about the preaching of the Word of God, care less if the person doing the preaching is even qualified to do the preaching. What matters to so many in the visible church's social programs is the building impressive enough? Do we have enough to keep the kiddies happy? I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, the true church, the mark, the mark of a true church is the preaching of the Word of God, which means it's the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who truly know Him and have faith in Him, their hearts will burn. Burn. How does faith grow? Well, we've already mentioned one, right? It grows by the Word of God. But that's not the only way it grows. It grows through prayer. Prayer. Turn in your Bibles to Acts, if you will. Acts chapter 3. I just want to show you. Now, Acts is this historical document that helps us see what it looked like when people really believed in Jesus Christ, what the church looked like. And we have to ask ourselves, do we look like this? But notice in verse 43, or look at verse 42 Now they had become Christians. There's some time that's gone by. He says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We see, at least in verse 42, three primary ways the Lord Jesus Christ uses to grow a Christian's faith. The Word of God. Preached, taught, read, explained. Believed, trusted, obeyed. Communion. The fellowship of the saints. But, but more than that, the fellowship of the saints in what? The breaking of the body of Christ and drinking His blood. When we eat the Lord's Supper, you know what we're saying? We're members of one another. And we're members of Jesus. We're together. What affects you affects me. 
What I do affects you. They were growing in communion. The more, listen, the more you give yourself, you come prepare for communion. That's the downside of taking it every Sunday. I'm all right, it's a warning, right? We preach the gospel every Sunday. But you come take the bread, you eat the bread, you hear Pastor Stanfield go through this, the, the whatever he's going to say, and, and you, you take it or you're not, and you know, it's done and you move on. That's not making use of the Lord's Supper. You got a deep interest in Christ, you're going to have a deep interest in his body and blood. You got to examine yourselves. Examine yourselves for what? With increase of grace. How can a person say they know Jesus Christ and never change? How can they remain the same? How can you keep the old interests, the old habits, and claim to know Jesus? Help me with that. How does that happen? See, it's a warning. If that's true of you, I'm here to tell you this morning, you need to flee to Jesus to escape the wrath of God in faith and repentance. Prayer. Do you pray for your soul? Do you pray for your increase of graces? When's the last time you prayed, Lord, increase my faith? When's the last time you asked God to use Pastor Stanfield to teach you the Word of God so you could put it into practice so your faith would grow? When's the last time you encouraged someone in their faith? When's the last time, or discouraged somebody, right? That's true too, right? Have you been an encouragement to the body or a discouragement to the body? Or does your participation and desire for the gathering of God's people, is it a benefit to the church? Or, or is it just whatever? Blah, blah, blah. Now, not everybody in Thessalonica was doing the right thing. Paul's going to get to a rebuke in chapter 3. I'm not going to get there now because I need to deal with this. We are members of one another. We are to participate. That is, this faith is increased as we give ourselves over to the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word. The ministry of prayer. Praying. Praying for the preaching. of the, Praying for the ministry of this church. Why? Because the ministry of this church is tied directly to your sanctification. It's tied directly to your obedience, to your, to your growth in grace, right? Well, if it's not, why are you here? Unless you just think church is a club, not a church, a body, a body, a temple, a bride. Notice the analogies used in Scripture to describe the people of God, the household of faith. Let me move on. I, I certainly, brothers and sisters, saving faith produces obedience to the Word of God. It wants to obey the Word of God. And no excuse, no excuse is acceptable from obeying the Word of God. None. Well, my mom or daddy is this way. Well, my sister provoked me. My brother provoked me. Well, you know, I just got a hot temper. Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just very sensual. I, whatever excuse you might give is not sufficient to trump saving faith desires to obey the Word of God. It desires Christ. 
it yearns for Christ. As a deer pants for the water after being pursued by the hunter, our souls long for Christ. The second grace is love. Love. And let me say a couple of things about love because I want to get this in so I can complete this study, this portion of those three traits. Love is a step beyond obedience. Love must be there for it to be true obedience. But just doing an activity, just performing something without love is not acceptable in God's sight. It's not acceptable. You can say, well, I obey God. I'm a, I'm a man, man, Pastor. I love the commandments. I want to obey the commandments. I, I love them. I want to do them. But you now do them with a loving heart. You don't do them joyfully. Oh, I'm at church. What's the problem? But you're not here joyfully. We sing these praises joyfully. We come to worship with our brothers and sisters joyfully. Love. Is the essence, it's the foundation, it's the kernel, it's, it's, it's the blossom of the root of the stem, of the flower. You know, plant, plant you some flowers or some tulips and the stem comes up and there's no bloom. You can look at them all day long and they're just green stems. Love is the blossom. It's the blossom. Love makes our obedience. Hmm. Beautiful. Love makes our obedience beautiful. It's a step beyond. That's what I mean by that. It's a, it's a fruit of the Spirit of God. And it too can increase and diminish. As we pursue and follow the means of grace in Jesus Christ. Our love can increase. Did you know that? It can. In fact, turn to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to show you the negative side of that. Revelation 2. I'm sorry. Um, Yes. Revelation 2 verse... Verse... Five. Verse 4. But I have this against you. Well, let's back up verse 2. I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. A lot of good things there. All good things. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. You see, you can do all those things, beloved. And if you lack love, it's not glorifying to God. It's not glorifying to God. That's why Christ comes and he, as He loves His bride and He corrects her and He says, listen, you need to come back to Me. You need to begin to love Me. You need to test the apostles. You need to test the teachers of the Scriptures. 
in, out of a vein of love for me, not just to do it, not just so you can do it and, 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 and mark it off as faithfulness. You must love me first and foremost. I mean, what good is a marriage if all you have is duty? <laughs> right? It's not any good. I kiss you because I have to. I cook for you because I have to. I work, make a living, bring home a check because I have to. Well, that means you can do it for someone else too. Love is, I want to do it for you. I love you. And the Bible says the reason we know love is because God first loved us and gave himself for us. Now that helps us define love, isn't it? Love is certainly sacrificial. It's an activity. Guess what? Love is not a group hug. Love is not a group hug. Though it will include a hug. You know what? Because there's people that need hugs. And you say, well, I'm not a huggy, touchy-feely kind of person. So what? You are now a new believer in Jesus Christ. Right? Sometimes a hug is going to be what a person needs to be encouraged. Paul says, let us learn how to weep with those who are hurting and laugh with those who are happy. If we're not growing up in that, brothers and sisters, guess what? You're not glorifying God. You're not. You think you are because you believe in a reformed faith. You think you are because you have some stuff in your Bible that's marked up. You think you are because you've read through the catechism. You're not. You must increase in love. You've got to learn to love people. Now listen to me. You can't love. You can't love a family member without costing you something. You can't love a church member without costing you something. It's going to cost you something. It can be time. It can be money. It can be, it can be a number of things, can't it? But if you're going to love the body of Christ and increase, as, as Paul writes in Thessalonians, he says that it's superabounding. That's the word. The Greek word means to superabound. It's supergrowing. These, this church was so enthralled with one another to make sure everybody stayed the course. They were catching up with each other. They were checking on each other. They were praying for each other. They were calling each other. They were encouraging each other. They were studying the Word together. They were worshiping together. They were growing together. And Paul says that's undeniable, your love for each other. Undeniable. It's obvious. It's not a group hug, though it may include a hug. If you go to 1 Corinthians, and I'm running out of time, love endures all things, believes all things, accepts all things. It doesn't mean that he believes every little lie you hear. I mean, it's wisdom has to be applied. It doesn't accept everything, though it accepts all things in Christ. In Christ, in gospel obedience. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we're not going to go there, I want to get through this. Paul says, if I offer myself to be burned at the stake, 
For the kingdom of God, and I lack love, it's for nothing. If I use the gifts of the Holy Spirit without love, it's nothing more than a clanging symbol. It's just noise. It'd be like me back there playing the piano. You wouldn't be able to sing to it. You would all wonder, what's he doing? That would be, that's a person trying to serve the body of Christ without love. It's just clanging notes that make no diff, that make no, that you can't understand. Paul says that's the Christian without love. We, and then Paul writes in Galatians, he says that love is the fulfillment of the law. That the goal of, of gospel obedience in the keeping the law of God is not to save ourselves, it's to love one another. Don't steal from each other. Don't defraud one another. Don't abuse sexually one another. Don't lust after one another. Don't covet each other's reputation, money, wife, husband, job. Be thankful for them. Be thankful for their status. Be thankful for their character and record. Brothers and sisters, without love, the church of God is ugly. You can have all these truths. You can have all this ministry. But without love, it does not glorify God. Let's put them together. Let me say this about love. I wanted to get into this. Well, Pastor Stanfield, what do I, how do I know what I love? How do I know? I'm going to give you one clue. You will conform to what you love. You'll conform to it. You love your job, you'll conform to it. You love your activities, you love whatever, you'll conform to it. You'll give money to it, you'll give your time to it. If you love Christ, it'll show. You'll conform to Him. You love the worship, it'll show. You'll participate in it. You love the Word of God, you'll read it. You'll memorize it. You'll desire it. You'll conform to it. You will be conformed to what you love most. Faith and love. Brothers and sisters, Let's be a body, an assembly of people that take to heart this encouragement. Let's ask ourselves, where do I stand with my brothers and sisters? Remember, this is plural. Paul is saying they do these things. If you have the overwhelming majority of the church doing it, guess what? That's good. If you have half and half, not so good. Ask yourself this, how does my obedience and love and faith aid my church. How do I bring encouragement to the body? How do I bring the, the, the kind of the kind of activity where someone can write of us, wow, that church excels in faith and love. Spend time today thinking on those things. You will not be sorry. 
and God will be glorified. Let us pray.